Stuart Davis has been part of the Integral family for a very long time. So long, in fact, that our very first recorded dialogue way back in April of 2003 was between Stu and Ken Wilber. There's a very good reason that Ken wanted to feature Stu right out of the gate. There's an undeniable vein of irreverence that cuts through Stuart's work. Irreverent, but never cynical, inauthentic, or insincere. Stu embodies a deeply tantric humor that leaves no stone unturned, no taboo untouched, and no sacred cow unskewered. He offers nothing less than a full chakra embrace of the absurdity of existence from body fluids to Brahmin. This can be unnerving for those who prefer only to look at the love and light aspects of incarnation or for those who take their spiritual identities and idolatries just a little too seriously. For these reasons, I sometimes think of Stuart as our integral gargoyle. I like to imagine him perched above the entrance to the integral temple, keeping all the new age riffraff at bay. However, Stuart is himself somewhat of a living paradox, and our favorite gargoyle is simultaneously one of our greatest ambassadors of integral consciousness, working tirelessly to bring more integral awareness into a cultural mainstream that has existed in a vacuum of irony, cynicism, and shallowness for way too long. I'm really looking forward to catching up with Stuart and seeing what he's been up to these past few years, especially his new Aliens and Artists podcast, as well as his new Experiencer group, which offers a way for people who have had any number of anomalous encounters to share their experiences with each other and explore their deeper meaning in a safe and non-judgmental space. But it's not easy having these kinds of conversations. We like to think we live in the information age, but since the advent of social media, it's really more like the disinformation age. We're overwhelmed on all sides by propaganda, conspiracy theories, and aperspectable madness. And all three of these have infected the field of ufology for decades. How can we possibly have a robust and rigorous discussion about something like UFOs and aliens and cosmic evolution without immediately succumbing to this madness? Well, if anyone has the answer to that question, it's Stuart. So whether you at home want to believe or if you wanna roll your eyes at the mere mention of UFOs, we invite you to open your mind, open your heart and allow yourself to sit in the radical unknowable mystery for just a little while. The universe is so much bigger and darker than we can ever imagine. Good thing Stuart brought his flashlight. Stuart was unable to join us by video today. So for the purposes of this discussion, I'll be using this figure from Queen's News of the World album to represent him while he's speaking. So Stu, how you doing, man? Oh my God, I don't even want to speak after that. I don't want to taint <laughs> or soil that beautiful intro, which... I really want to meet that guy because I don't, <laughs> I don't recognize him. <laughs> Maybe I've got a little golden shadow around you. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's really good to hear your voice. It's really good to be with you. It's been way too long. It's a testament to how far back we go to think of we met right around that time. Correct me if I'm wrong. When I did that first recording with Ken, I didn't even understand what was happening. I literally he just decided to record. He didn't prep me or contextualize things and let me know that it was part of this. I just remember finding myself recording that with him and thinking it was fun because it always is to hang out with him. Yeah. And then and integral naked. It's beautiful to think of that and to touch hands in the sky with you because you are standing still creating the beauty in a field of corpses and blown limbs. <laughs> <laughs> A few so of my bravo. own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bravo. 
Well, thanks, man. No, I appreciate that. And we do, we go way back, man. Actually, um, you know, just, just earlier this week, I was reminiscing, uh, watching those early episodes of uh, the Stuart Davis show. Oh man. Which, you know, it's funny, man, because we released those, the, that was like the first years of YouTube and, uh, those videos, that whole series. I mean, it's still some of the best stuff I've ever seen on YouTube. I mean, and the humor still holds up. I mean, all these, what's it been like 12, 13, 14 years since we I published those coming clips. up on 15, maybe. Even. Oh, it's, it's nuts, dude. And, um, it, it's crazy to me just how, uh, ahead of the curve, your humor and your style and, you know, the sort of editing you did with those clips. I mean, it was, people were just beginning to sort of experiment with, with this new platform. You know, what, what can we do with something like YouTube? And you were already pushing the envelope to the point where now 2021, I mean, I think people are still kind of playing catch up with some of the, the fun shit you were up to back then. It was so fun. And, and, you know, no one knew what was happening. It was such a flux of blissful chaos and, so much of it came under duress, even the way those videos were made, which are still the thing I get the most comments on, uh, where I played myself and two other versions of myself, and they obtain and are stationed in different developmental altitudes. And that really was largely because I didn't have actors. And I didn't have anyone to right. play with. And I was shooting it all in my garage. And I had to turn one in every week or so. And so it was just important to get them done. And that was this recourse to just needing other perspectives and then it became really fun from there <laughs> just also the flat-out narcissism of these three <laughs> identical dorks populating the screen each episode it's but i won't touch on that in a form of celebration is to note i'm literally still in talks with tv companies i have a meeting tomorrow with a company from Canada. I'm not going to say their name in case it falls through, but they've been saying since November, they want to make season one of the clones, a full on, you know, I wrote this whole show Bible and expanded yeah. upon it when I was living in Holland. And they say that's going to happen this year. So they are the triptych of narcissism that refuses to die. <laughs> still, I'm still having meetings about them. One of, one of my favorite quotes was from uh, episode two, I think, when you're singing uh, Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes to Yourself, which is by far <laughs> my favorite by far my favorite episode oh, and you God. say uh speaking to the narcissism you say i love all of you all the good parts and all the great parts <laughs> <laughs> i love that line so much oh, <laughs> i'm excited for you to get to experience the season one if it happens because we put the pedal to the floor this bible we wrote and we shot a pilot last year in holland it's all set in holland and instead of adjusting it to protect the modern audience of this new generation 15 years later we just floored it nice it's more bizarre than ever and more delightfully tenderly transgressive in ways that we love so hey, that's why i call you our gargoyle man i i've never had that moniker before but i i'm savoring it at this I, moment yes you know, you know you're, yeah. you're i mean don't get me wrong you're a pretty gargoyle I'm getting more gargoyle-y as the years go by. <laughs> Fucking age, man. You know, just being on Earth kind of thing. Take well, uh, the spherical boxing match each day we wake up, and that's all good. That's all good. You know, slings and arrows, all that. <laughs> um, do you ever wonder what would have happened? You know, again, when we were doing those videos way back in the day, 
I mean, we didn't know what this thing called YouTube would end up becoming. We didn't know how disruptive it would be. We didn't know, you know, what the future of the television industry looked like, which itself got very, very disrupted. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if like you stuck with the YouTube format? I mean, maybe you'd be bigger than, I don't know, PewDiePie today. I don't know who that is, but oh, well, he's, he's well. one of those, he's one of those guys who makes like a million dollars a month just okay. talking right. crap on, on, on YouTube. I know the category. Yeah. I don't know what would have happened uh, if I were to speculate. You know, I've always been plagued with the integral malady, the integral malady being the profusion of interest and passions that seems to emerge for all of us when this comes online. And when I read Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, and I began to be involved in the Integral Institute and Integral Naked, the inexhaustible range of possibilities as an artist, a creator, a spiritual practitioner, and just a human being on earth propagated so wildly that that's a long answer to your question to say, I don't know how long I could have focused on one thing to mm. the exclusion of others in order to make it work. I tend to do an album and feel like I'm ready to move on from music and then we'll do a tv show and after the tv show i just want to paint and then i'll paint for a while and wonder why am i not a better ballerina and <laughs> <laughs> i can definitely say i i've seen i've seen you give up music about a half dozen times since i've known you it's true i have i am the only solo artist to break up and reunite with himself at least a half a dozen times <laughs> i mean i literally watch you burn your guitar on the beach i still oh. have that guitar strap by the way i brought oh, home i brought that home that did guitar happen strap. that was that was a bit of like my, my uh my hero worship for you wow guitar strap. that was a cathartic night it was we should let people know that you i jason lang um nicole clint uh, just like old school integral hardcore gang that all went through the honeymoon and also the the gauntlet of those early years we were doing a event in where was that Silomar, i think right Silomar, yeah and i had to go out on the beach one night and cathartically burn a guitar uh which did not yet effectively end my career which was resurrected like not not like a Christ, more like a who's the dude in the Bible that Christ resurrected? Lazarus? But, was that Lazarus? Yes, I think it was Lazarus. Lazarus. Good, nice, nice pull. Yeah. Um, yeah, we sat on the beach and burned a guitar, and the worst part of it is that it wasn't my guitar, <laughs> <laughs> and I lost a friend over that for real, and I feel terrible about it to this day. We're good now, but it was bumpy for a good year. Didn't ask permission. Uh, it was impulsive. <laughs> Beautiful memory. Thank you. I hadn't thought. Well, that very so symbolic. Long. I mean, I hope he felt, you know, the the import of the symbolism of uh, burning that particular guitar on the beach. I think he actually felt it was a little on the nose, as they say in Hollywood. It. He, he was like, you couldn't have, as an artist, come up with some creative tandem parallel expression that would have more... I just, I didn't think of it at the time. So yeah, we burned guitars and that's... And then, and then we all made sweet love on the yep, sand. Yep, we did. I still have little rocks in my epidermis to this day. <laughs> awesome, man. It's fun. It's, it's, it's always fun reminiscing. And uh, we just have so much, again, shared time together that um, we could do a six-hour episode just talking 
you know, sort of going through the Polaroids of our memory. Really good. Like class oh. of what, 2000? Well, I don't know when it all started, but whatever that class was, we could do podcasts. And maybe we should one day just to recollect, reminisce. There's a lot of untold <laughs> stories in that hall. There are. Yeah. There's a few books waiting to be written, I think. I believe so. And maybe some deaths that we're awaiting in order to make those books possible. <laughs> that might be, you know, funeral by funeral. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the stuff you've been up to lately. And I want to start actually um, with this experiencer group. We'll get to the we'll get to the podcast later. The podcast is making some fairly big waves from what I understand um, internationally. It's like a, a huge podcast in, I don't know, like Southeast Asia or something like that, right? We're number five in Vietnam. Thank you, friend. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, who I don't guess? know. I can't understand any of it. I really don't. Well, we'll get we'll get to that stuff in a second. Yeah. But first, I want to start um, with this experiencer group because this is um, something I, you know, you invited me uh, to join this group. Um, you know, and and I should say from the beginning, I did have you know, I've had my own sort of weird little experience anomalous experience um, which i've sort of always kind of put in parentheses and set to the side you know um but you know i, I really leaned in when you sent me this invite because I, I i'm interested in what kind of conversations are taking place over there what sorts of people have turned up to report on sort of you know weird anomalous experiences uh that they may have um had at some point in their lives and what kind of sort of deeper meaning people are are generating from these experiences so maybe you can give us just kind of, you know, the broad strokes here. What are you doing over there? Uh, what's the deal? And, um, you know, what are you really trying to cultivate with this group of people? Surely. So as with many things that get created in life, we are often creating that which we're finding a void of and for in the world. That's often art, relationships, virtually anything you can think of. Sometimes it's absence is what creates the demand. And so with the experiencer group, we've created a membership site that is expressly created by experiencers for experiencers in which they can come into a protected sanctuary and discuss the most tender, strange, bizarre, life-changing events of all variety, all kinds of anomalous experience. So we're talking Everything from near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, astral travel, precognition, mediumship, um, of course, alien abduction, contact with non-human entities. The list is very, very long, and all of it is there. Each of those types of non-ordinary experience has its own group. And so if you come to the site and you're a member and you've had a near-death experience, and that's really where your focus and passion is, you can just be there, just in the near-death experiencer group. But if you have a broadened uh, curiosity to explore more, you're also invited to partake in these meetups we do. So we will, several times a week, actually, we have people from all over the world get together on Zoom. We have moderated sessions that are private. And people make an agreement. We have intake forms. Everyone understands whatever is shared in these groups stays in these groups mm -hmm. and that they will not speak of it outside of the site. It has a lot of that support group quality to it, but it also really is not conventional support because as many of us with integral curiosity have noticed, 
one of the biggest things that we can do for each other, whatever it is with marriage support or recovery is simple attunement. And mm -hmm. a lot of what's most powerful about the experience or group meetups is this attunement where someone is going to share something they maybe have never shared before. It's been important or perhaps the most important event of their life. And they are surrounded by people who in one form or another get it. They've everyone there has been through something strange. It's not our role as moderators and founders of the site to determine for you what you consider strange, what you consider anomalous. If you come to us and you're sincere, our policies are simple, no trolls, no personal attacks, no talking about private things outside of the site. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's like it's the kind of the golden rule approach, but it's carefully curated. And we have <laughs> put it this way, we've stacked the deck with as many integrally informed presences as possible, right. uh, which was in my interest as well in reaching out to you. And we want to try to continue to do that. It's not as though I'm it's not just me. It's me, Jay King and Kirsten Blackburn. The three of us are triune founders. We all want to create a positive anomalous culture. And all three of us want to see a form of dialogue, exploration, inquiry, which is of a higher and deeper order. We don't really have a horse in the race in terms of what people's interpretations are to a degree. Mm -hmm. We don't want any politics discussed on the site. We have one little room where you can talk. Well, yeah, we have one room. It's like a, a safe room for politics, but no one said a word in there, which I find very interesting. There's been no discussion in that room. Yep. Uh, we just want to help facilitate each individual going through their developmental arc because it is a developmental arc. The truth is that oftentimes experiencers have lifelong histories that are patterned in very fascinating ways and very often are intergenerational. And so what that means, of course, is that a human being is often going through many stages of development and coming to different interpretations and meanings around these strange experiences. So that's about the experiencer group in a nutshell, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, I mean, what it sounds like is so people are kind of self-selecting into this group based on personal experiences that they may have, have, which are, you know, usually like phenomenological experiences, right? Like I saw something in the sky or I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this, you know, abduction experience or, um, you know, I, I took too much DMT and I saw the machine elves. I mean, whatever it might yeah. be, it's sort of leading with, with people's actual phenomenological experience. And I'm, I'm curious how you sort of hold phenomenology in the group, because, you know, people are, I think, for good reason, kind of naturally skeptical of pure phenomenology. Um, you know, how do you know if God is actually talking to you or if you're just imagining God talking to you, for example, or, you know, how do you know that you are um, coming from a psychologically healthy place versus maybe have a little, I don't know, schizophrenia or something like that going on, which can create its own kind of subset of phenomenological experiences. Now, of course, one of the, the, the virtues of the rational stage of development was that they came along and said, look, it's not enough to base an entire philosophy, you know, or an entire religion or an entire lineage off, you know, purely off of, of phenomenology. There, we have to find a way to 
correlate these experiences with something that's objectively measurable and you know falsifiable out there somewhere. Um, and of course, we historically went way too far in that direction, and we sort of arrived at this um, you know the the stage of materialism that we're all in right now, where phenomenological experiences are actually sort of automatically discounted, right, in in favor of yeah. hard, rigorous, objective truths and all that stuff. And one of, you know, I think the real virtues of integral is it sort of restores phenomenology to its its rightful place. I mean, we're allowed to start drawing data from the upper left quadrant again and holding it as relevant. We then, you know, have to unfold that data with other data from the other quadrants in order to, you know, get a more kind of cohesive and coherent picture here. But there's a place again for phenomenology. Um, which means I think there's a place again for groups like yours to really dig in deep and try to, you know, get to the bottom of some of these mysteries underlying their own experiences. Um, so I guess my, you know, my first question for you about this group is, um, are you guys actually just doing kind of pure phenomenology over there? Or is this kind of being plugged into a, a deeper, wider framework, um, even if it's a framework that kind of sits behind the scenes somewhere? Yeah. I love this question. And to begin with, I want to note that I make room for a world in which you could be talking to God from your delusion and God could be genuinely talking to you at the same time. <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. That's just like such a terrible uh, situation for an experiencer to have to report. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I'm half joking on that, but I think that one of the insights of Integral as you were highlighting there is that the there's an opportunity for us to make room for the kind of sophistication paradox and dichotomy in which mental illness can also cohabitate with genuine experience and i'm going to put the air quotes because i know we got to go in and define genuine and whatnot but i just want to offer that as a way before I go into phenomenology as it sits within the experiencer group and our work over there to say that one of the things that motivates us is to make room in our presence, attention and attunement for dichotomy, for mm. paradox, for contrast, because the truth is a lot of these anomalous phenomena thrive in that kind of what Sean Asbjorn Hargens calls doubleness, which is a term that I love and is essentially around those markers. So can, can you to, double double click that real quick? Doubleness, what does that mean? Doubleness is a quality and expression preferred by many of the phenomena and the entities which ostensibly populate these experiences people are having in which contradicting qualities coextensively characterize the events. So I'll give you an instance. Hmm. It, you, we ask ourselves, are grays real? Are they physical? Are, are abductions taking place in the gross realm? Mm -hmm. Well, doubleness is that, guess what? These entities over and over, and I mean, we're talking cross-culturally across continents and every demographic you can think of, these entities look the same, behave the same, and they walk through walls. Not only did they pass through physical structures with no impediment, they get the experiencers moved through physical structures, which to our knowledge from the sentiment of current day violates the laws of physics. However, the physical components of abduction are equally 
Outstanding. So you are going to find scarring. You are going to find messing with people's reproductive systems. You're going to find implants. The list is very long. And we find doubleness is that there are salient physical corporeal trademarks to this that are across cultures and demographics. And also, no one can figure out how the fuck these entities are moving through physical objects. So is it gross? Yes. Is it incorporeal? Yes. And that's the kind of allowance that someone like Sean S. Bjorn Hargens is able to make with this uh, approach, including doubleness to begin mm. as we look at it to understand it's going to transgress our categories. It doesn't care. These entities and experiences often just have no regard for the way we would prefer our reality partitioned, let's say. So um, I hope that's enough of a double click on. Double yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's helpful. Thank you. So with phenomenology, uh, I would say to begin with, in regards to the experiencer group, it varies how we handle it. So I feel that through Sean's work, the experiencer group and people like Bruce Alderman, there is gradually developing a more integrally formed approach to anomalous phenomena around human contacts and non-human entities, etc. But the phenomenological part is definitely there at the core and the inception of a person coming to terms with what's going on for them, beginning to say it out loud, simply state their story. It took me eight years to, to share publicly, for instance, my mantis experience, yeah. which happened to me in 2010. For eight years, I excogitated on that and just paced the cage bracing myself for the horrors of what it would be to simply honestly make an account of what I'd experienced and how it had affected my life. So, and I'm an artist. I don't have a reputation to lose. I don't have a, right. a face to uphold in the community. I, it still took me that long. So on the phenomenological component, it's really this beautiful critical moment when people can come forward and simply speak what their experience was. And hopefully in a set of conditions in which they're not trying to accommodate the implied preferences that come from our culture and our society. There's all kinds of implications in doing this, right? Would you like to lose your job? Would you like a divorce? Would you like to be put in a mental asylum? Would you like to lose your shot at tenure? I, I can't even count, right? So yep. that phenomenological piece, super important. And I share your enthusiasm and description of how integral has really helped restore that to be one of the domains that we can gather from and consider what is gathered. Yeah. But beyond that, what really begins to emerge is more of a methodological pluralism. So as I was referencing right. earlier with the attunement that goes on in a group, the mutuality, sympathetic resonance is the big we, the we with a capital W, right? That begins to allow for a positive anomalous culture to start to emerge. So that's another one of our big motivations and inspirations with the experiencer group is, could we make a better culture around this? What would that look like? How can we yeah. teach each other to be there as a we? So beyond that, we get into these extensions which I think are also really interesting. And I kind of have come to think of them as an inner and outer cartography that's being spontaneously charted 
by the community that's coming together. So if you take, for instance, my mantis entity experience, and by the way, I'm not going to go into it because anyone can hear the whole thing in detail on my podcast. And it's like the first episode, right? Right. It's episode zero. Yes. So it's, we would be redundant to go into that here, but I share my story, which uh, the event occurred in 2010 takes me eight years. I'm bracing for all of this. Oh God, what's going to happen? The hate mail, the trolling, blah, blah, well, blah. Can cancel, cancel culture has existed in this field for decades. Oh my God. It is. I mean, this field invented cancel culture right. almost. There's an <laughs> argument to be made for that. I mean, in the in the 40s, the witches, the might, have got, age. The witches might have gotten oh, their first. Few. I think you're right, actually. Deferred, deferred to the witches. Bad props. That is a great point. But the alphabet agencies perhaps perfected it even more beginning in the 40s as soon as. Yeah. Uh, so the cancel culture, totally a real thing. But then I, I go and share my experience. And instead of negativity, what I end up receiving, what comes back is... <laughs> the most profound personal messages, emails from other people who have had Manted Encounter experiences. Wow. And that changed my life. That really, I mean, when the podcast went out and Manted Experiencers began to reach out to me and you can reel and read and feel pouring off of those emails the existential crisis. We as integralists know how grave it is when a worldview crumbles. And that's what happens. That's what happens in many of these anomalous experiences, a worldview crumbles. And then the question is, will one replace it? If so, what? No one knows what to put there. There is not, not only a system of resources for people to make those explorations, but again, back to the positive anomalous culture, the, the appropriate attunement, the sufficient set of peers to facilitate that, which we all need. I mean, again, humans are plural. We just start to die on our own. So when I shared and this flood came back from these other Manted experiencers, I began to have this let's just call it a left quadrant lean where I got really frustrated and passionate that we've seen decades of fetishized obsessing around artifacts and are there secret programs? Did we reverse engineer something? Does this piece of metal come from a, sh like it's objectivism and fetishism within these anomalous realms. And I don't begrudge any of that necessarily because actually some of the best figures in the field, Leslie Kane, James Fox, Richard Dolan, they're doing brilliant work there. But what's missing is interiority. I was just looking around, I'd be like, interiors. Do you guys know there are millions of experiencers all over the world and they are undergoing an integral running of the, uh, I forget, what is it called when you run the gauntlet? They're yeah. running the gauntlet, the interior gauntlet. And so that, I hope, speaks to what I feel is a burgeoning, but still incipient methodological pluralism. Totally. Pretty much everyone I know wants to keep and include all of the right-hand quadrant stuff. That stuff's great. Of course, we want to know about that tic-tac. Of course, we yep. want to know. But like, But I just felt like the blind spot was in the left-hand quadrants and that we needed... 
not just a restoration of phenomenology as a legit, legitimate component, but the positive anomalous culture, the we. So to really, like in the most simplest sense, make sure we have the I, the we, and the it, and that we also have a vertical sense that development is a factor here as well. Does that make sense to your question? Oh, no, that's awesome. And I just, I find myself kind of cascading as I'm listening to you talk, um, you know, Speaking of bridging sort of the objective, you know, the exteriors and the interiors, um, one of the points I think that you made that um, I really appreciate was, you know, I started my question by saying, what about people with mental dysfunctions? And, you know, I want to be clear, mental dysfunctions do exist. I mean, there are some people who legitimately, either from trauma or by, you know, some kind of strange chemistry uh, at birth or whatever, there are some people with, you know, maladapted um brains and those brains can be tuned into other experiences that, um, you know, more sort of quote unquote normal brains, um, you know, don't necessarily experience as much, which is one of the reasons why, you know, one of my favorite concepts to emerge out of green is actually the concept of neuroatypicality. Um, I think that's mm. such a, a better way to hold this because it's, it's actually a celebration to a certain extent of, of neural diversity. And it's, it's, it's understanding that like with, you know, different hardware or wetware, as we often call sort of neural tissue with different wetware, you can have different software running. You can have different experiences, different phenomenologies because, you know, your, your wetware is working a little bit differently than other people's, which means that your perceptions might be a little bit different than other people's. And now we have a process by which we can validate those experiences and include them along with some of the more normative experiences maybe. Um, so I think that's a really important point because it might actually be true that people with certain conditions also have access to certain wisdoms that might be harder to uncover for other people. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? yes, affirmed. And I also think it's interesting to entertain the other side of the coin in this equation. So when we, everything that you just related about human beings, sends me into an inquiry around how non-human sentience may or may not prefer certain human features and why and when. Right. This is a really kinetically alive aspect of these points of inquiry because in the spirit of what you were sharing, I have seen the literature replete with instances where the event the signaling, the language, the way that it evoked a human's development makes no sense according to the conventions and meaning-making systems that we've employed thus far to approach a lot of this. And when yeah. we put ourselves, even we can't, but when we make an attempt to take the first-person perspective of a non-human entity, perhaps coming through a dimensionality or temporal stream that we don't have an acquaintance to, and then arriving with a totally unacquainted encounter with human beings, what might be truly compelling or interesting to them. And I think that is a furtive area of inquiry that I hope we can really get together in as a group in the experiencer group, because I feel like that's another part of the inside of thing that's getting left out when we have yeah. such right as integralist, as we were saying in the beginning, one of the great benefits, the treasures we inherit is this understanding that access to perspectives is exponentially more fluid and available to us than perhaps we imagined earlier in life. I think, of course, the chasm between human and non-human 
sentience is there. But I also don't think it's impossible for us to gain some depth and dimension around just that thing you are relating. What what is mental illness to us or a aberrant feature in human consciousness might be a gold mine. It might be the only way in for some types of entities. So I just wanted to share that because I think it's a very interesting point. Mm. Well, and the other the other piece of it too, Stu, is I think the other nice thing about trying to unpack this within an integral framework is that the integral framework itself kind of gives you more space, more dimensionality, more places to go when it comes to like trying to explain certain phenomena. So, I mean, you know, maybe we discover at the end of the day that a certain element of these experiences, of these phenomenological experiences can be correlated with subtle energies, causal energies, etc. It just so happens that we do not yet have the instruments that are sophisticated enough to measure and quantify these types of energies. Um, that's something that's entirely possible in, you know, 500 years from now after a series of technological innovations, <laughs> right? We're actually able to see these fields in a way that um, right now we just kind of have to imagine. Um, but, you know, the nice thing about how Ken has put together his framework is, it's sort of, you know, there, there's an opening here. There's, you know, he, he has a whole theory of subtle energies, uh, which he's holding as a hypothesis until it can actually be objectively rigorously falsified. Uh, so until then it remains a hypothesis, but it's a damn good hypothesis that seems to give us just a lot more room to play in conversations like this. Yeah. This is such a great point. And it brings up one of my most cherished and savored and treasured components of what I got as an integral, a curious, a, a integrally curious person in so many different fields and domains, whether it was spirituality or cognition or art and aesthetics. And that is the way that integral makes room for the transrational and the way that integral allows for and makes room for these higher registers of yes, emergent, yes, mysterious, yes, not entirely well mapped. But nonetheless, these things are happening to people, these experiences are arising. And I love what you're relating about the potentiality. And again, the integral methodological pluralism being right now the best footpath forward on this. And the reason I in particular have such an appreciation and regard for making room for the transrational and also being able to make distinctions between pre-rational, rational, and transrational, because there's a lot of that confusion going on. There's a lot of aggrandizing yep. confusion around that. But in many instances, this set of anomalous experiences seems to thrive on and in at least non-rational, but in my, I would make an argument that often it is actually transrational. And the problem of making sense of it all that experiencers are saddled with is that these phenomena often invoke and exploit non-rational theater. Hmm. It, it, it literally seems to actively undermine our conventional sense-making tools and approaches. And this is such an interesting subtlety in what we're exploring in the experiencer group, because I think from what I know, 
integral and the space that's been made there for the transrational. And also in the better of our mystical and esoteric and occult traditions, but in a different way. I think integrals got it to be a lot more coherent mm -hmm. and has also shown us the relationship among them. I have a feeling that that's going to be a magnetic point that we're being pulled toward in our future. And one thing I ruminate about all the time is if we take one of these instantiations of when the transrational punctures the membrane and brings some of its place with it when it visits us. Mm -hmm. The question I have is, is there going to be a time when the permeability between our normal, seemingly solid, you know, the wonderful gross reality that we like walk, to walk through where a wall is a wall and a table is a table. Is it going to get softer if we can forecast 10,000, 50,000 years in the future? Is what we're experiencing always going to remain liminal? Or will some brokering take place in which the permeability becomes facilitated more easily and mm -hmm. to include in all of that is the question around like does the afterlife evolve does the realm of the dead evolve i think that's very adjacent to does the subtle evolve does the causal evolve did my daughters enter into access to a subtle realm that is different than the one that was there fifty thousand years ago and i think right. you and i probably intuitively feel yes in some sense but right. how it's very interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated. It's re it's resonating with a conversation I was having with uh, with Bruce and a couple of my friends uh, just yesterday. Actually, I mean, we're actually looking at Ken's um, comprehensive theory of subtle energies, and he's got one in there called Hypothesis Four, where he's basically saying gross level matter energy is required for the expression of subtle and causal realms, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not necessary for their ontological existence, and that is just a endlessly fascinating <laughs> point that we can geek out on forever yeah. because you know yeah. ken says we need to have some sort of ontological um independence for these realms if a theory like reincarnation is is going to work but my question to ken which i'm going to ask him in a future episode of the ken show is what was the condition and the contents of the subtle and causal spaces in the very first years after the big bang before life had a chance to evolve. Oh man. Right? Did those realms just exist as like a vacuum of potential? Is there an ecology, a subtle ecology, a causal ecology that that sort of emerges through evolution and once it does, then it can have ontological existence outside of the gross realm? I mean, these are endlessly fascinating questions that I feel like are are, are totally germane to this conversation right here. Absolutely. And I find myself additionally curious around all of the manner in which we could make contrast and compare with, let's just start with a question that I have heard us kick around for 15 or 20 years, which is, does integral transport and carry consistently to the other realms of the galaxy, the universe. So for instance, how integral is integral if it can't be right? applied intergalactically, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really I'm fascinated by that because totally. there's this, um, you know, the term ontological shock, if you heard the term ontological shock, I've heard the term but say more. So when john Mack, who is instrumental to a great degree, 
in how I got involved with a lot of these communities, not as an experiencer, but just as a friend and cohort. And he was the head of psychiatry at Harvard. And he took up the study of abductions initially because he thought that he had discovered a new pathology, a new, a new form of malady that had not yet been outlined. And he was kind of thinking, hey, I'll get something really wild in the DSM-4. So he went, started studying and working with experiencers. And, you know, fast forward to five, 10 years later, his, his take was that this is not a mental illness. These people are having experiences that we don't have categories for. We need a new epistemology. We need an offering that he had that I found particularly valuable is ontological shock. And so ontological shock is what we were touching on earlier, which is when the advent of some of these experiences decimates our worldview, decimates our meaning-making systems, and we're looking for what to replace that to. And this does tie in with what you were just sharing, because as a developmental driver, I do feel that there's a case to be made that sometimes ontological shock is part of the strategy some of these non-human entities are using in order to move us. And the way they like to move us for instance, all the frustration with when's there going to be disclosure and is, well, how come the government won't X, Y, Z? And my feeling has always been, not always, I think more recently in the last five years, I would say, is that these entities show up when they want, how they want, and they do what they want the way they want. And it's going the way they want. And I feel that ontological shock is sometimes a strategic component. It especially amplifies when we consider the frequency with which trauma partners with anomalous experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know the formula yet, but this thing we're asking around, okay, what was the subtle and causal conditions at the point of the Big Bang, which I find to be so fascinating as a, a tether or a tendril reaching out to touch this question of where are they coming from? How old are they? What is time to them? What might what we don't know be? Because you can't know what you don't know. And so the not knowing becomes this gestating force that can include ontological shock, can include transrational experiences that have really no regard for the tidy veneer of society that we put together, right? Right. But that's always, in some sense, a developmental driver. Right. Sadly, we also see people regress. We see them collapse. We see people lose everything. That's also part of the story. Yep. So you're I, gonna you're either gonna transform or you're gonna transgress after an experience like that, right? Yes, or radically dissociate mm -hmm. until one of the two wins out. But yeah. yes, I completely we've seen this over and over and over again. And so the question that you're going to ask Ken around what the subtle and causal conditions were, for instance, at the point of the Big Bang, it's actually something that I think about all the time as well, because, for instance, to make it more personal again, the mantid entity that I had contact with told me that it had known me through many of my incarnations and that every time I get amnesia and every time we got to go through this courtship and it's a whole fucking thing. But yes, I, you know. I, I wouldn't take any of this too literally, but the spirit of what it was sharing was, I basically have one incarnation that lasts like five or 10,000 years of yours. And so you're going through all of these cycles because humans only live 
very short while. And then it takes you forever to even remember anything. And then pretty much just not much later, you're dead. So it's like, do you know what it's like to work with that all the time? It's like, <laughs> this is so frustrating. Yeah. It's We're like always playing Groundhog Day. Exactly. The thing, the, excuse me, the bean was like, you should have more appreciation for how much of a sense of humor I have around this because it's ridiculous. <laughs> you have amnesia. But that is just a tiny little instantiation of this question around how does the subtle evolve? How does the causal evolve? And what can we know about it? And I think that's germane in particular to the experiencer group stuff because we see some strong indications that a lot of these entities don't call the gross realm home the way that we do. Yeah, well, that's this is, I mean, sort of an ongoing curiosity. You know, I mean, let me just say, one of the reasons I love this subject so much, um, it, it actually comes from two reasons. I mean, one, it's like of all the, if we can just lump it in, right, which is unfair to lump it in, but if we can just say that um, of all the quote unquote conspiracy theories that are out there, this is the one <laughs> <laughs> with by far like the most radically huge implications for freaking everything for every thing we know about life the universe ourselves god etc it all hinges on this so it's like you know and, and this was my frame to get ken wilbur to talk about this subject for like two and a half hours without like just rolling his eyes out of the back of his head the whole time Bravo. just like ken let's Let's, you know, suspend disbelief for a moment here, because, again, if there's any chance at all, I mean, you know, I continue to think that if we find a single microbe on like Europa, that's enough to change everything. Maybe not when we actually look at human nature, but, you know, actually making contact with another intelligent species somewhere and being able to verify this would be it would just irrevocably change everything. So there's sort of um. You know, when I just think about the consequences, that really makes me lean in. But the other side of it is what we were talking about earlier. How integral is integral? How much predictive power does this framework actually have if we were to extend it out, you know, over the span of an entire galaxy or multiple galaxies, an entire cluster or or what have you? I mean, is there or do we see the, the same uh, basic moral arc towards goodness, for example? Well, that tells us a certain thing about the questions around like Fermi's paradox, for example. You know, if we do universally grow towards goodness, well, that's gonna, that's gonna say something about these possible encounters that people are, are reporting. Or maybe, you know, maybe they see five quadrants and F1. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's so hard to, to think about what might be the intent of these entities if they do exist because all we have is our own planet-centric sense-making and mythologies and projections that we're going to bring to that you know it's kind of like when ken says a person can have a high subtle state experience if they live in you know england in the 1400s they're probably going to see an angel with a horn and a halo and wings and all that and if you're living in india you're probably going to see a thousand armed goddess so there's so much room for you know the the details that we pack onto these experiences sort of post hoc um how do you guys or do you guys is this a consideration for you like do you try to when you're trying to have conversations about you know, what are these entities? What is their intent? Do they have, you know, sort of positive motivations or negative motivations for our evolutionary unfolding, et cetera? How do you arrive at some of those questions when you realize that like, 
we're talking about an alien intelligence. It's like trying to imagine a new color. You can't, you can't step into that perspective. So how do you put the pieces together into some kind of understanding of intent and purpose and the meaning of all this? Is that quite, is that, is that question? I love this question completely. So intentions, this is a really powerful node. And I want to start with trying to balance the romantic inclination on one hand to project our higher self onto these beings mm -hmm. simply because they're non-human, which I feel is profoundly ill-advised, but then inversely to demonize them and to imagine that they are malevolent interlopers. And again, in the spirit of, in the earlier part of our conversation, to allow for perhaps tiny iterations of each of those, but probably something more in the middle that mm. simply doesn't comport with our anthropomorphic notions of free will, intention, and the objectives of these entities. So like, I'll get real concrete and specific with it. I know that's kind of a broad frame up, but take for instance, the abduction and hybridization program. So intentions, well, what are the intentions of entities that take people in the night without getting their permission and take them to environments where they are incapacitated, their memories are altered and manipulated. Their bodies are treated like biological harvesting sources. They are not communicated with to inform or dissipate their absolutely death thrall of fear that is nearly universal in at least the initiating stages of these kinds of experiences for people. And then those people are returned and their memories are either erased and then their children are taken and the list goes on and on and on. So what are the intention of entities that operate in the shadows with a clear utilitarian objective somewhere? This program that they've been like, let's just set aside our ontological questions around the nature of the beings, where they're from, etc. Let's just talk about intention. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that are most clear within the abduction phenomenon is that the same procedures are repeated over and over and they're conducted in the same way around a same purpose that we're not brought into the fold on. We're not read in on what the ultimate objective of this is. Although we are told over and over again that we're part of something magical that we have were chosen and that the the outcome is this really important thing and that the also usually in combination with the world is ending you're killing your planet you're absolutely fucking destroying earth and you're going to end up going extinct so there's a menu of messages but they mm -hmm. don't cohere into a nice tidy arrive point for an experiencer and so when you have that set of clues and you're trying to read the intentions of entities, I think we can very easily understand how we get all over the map with this, because right. it's totally reasonable for someone to say, you violated my sovereignty, you are invading and traumatizing my family over generations, you have no regard for human emotion, why don't you protect us from being injured or feeling pain when these things are going on? Those are all totally valid questions. Yep. But if you flip to the other end of the spectrum, and you think, okay, these 
entities they're malevolent they're demons you know there's this from the amber view there is a lot of talk that these are demons masquerading as aliens okay mm -hmm. which again developmentally on a vertical chain that's an understandable frame mm -hmm. coming from amber and it's founded in enough information and data to be quasi sound however then we have to have to understand why demons are so concerned about the ecology of planet earth <laughs> It's one of the main, most consistent things. Then we also have to understand why do they heal some people and they don't heal others? They take some right. people with diseases and sicknesses and leave them be, and they take others and they cure them completely and totally. And I know many of these people, you know, I know them well, they're not lying. They, they used to not be able to see without glasses as thick as your pinky finger. And now their eyes are perfect. And there's like that shit happens. So intention, uh, I think in the spirit of the vertical and horizontal axis of integral considerations, it's very fucking complicated. And yeah. I think the bad news is there's a, from my view, how I would put it is there's a lot of entities. They occupy and have access egress from dimensions that we don't with an ease we can't understand. And they are keeping their intentions largely to themselves. And that probably figures in their success. So mm -hmm. I think it's complicated and, and frustrating. I, you know, I keep getting the mental image of like um, a single cell in my body questioning the intentions of a surgeon who's using a scalpel to slice right through it <laughs> in order to give me a heart transplant and save my life. Like it doesn't look pretty from the perspective of that single cell right? Because how can that single cell possibly understand the intentions of the surgeon? So, I mean, intention is something that slides when we're talking, you know, is it, is it like two equivalent level holons that are having this encounter and one holon is, is forcing the other one and going against their sovereignty? Or is this like, are there like 20 holonic levels separating us? In which case, this is the equivalent of us taking an ant out of an ant colony and studying it and dissecting it so we can better understand the colony. Um, you know, and it's funny that every stage of altitude feeding into this conversation has its own projection. I mean, you talked about the amber, you know, it's a bunch of demons. There's a flip side to that too, which you see oftentimes in sort of new age treatments of, of um, the subject where no, it's a whole constellation of angels. And this yeah. is nothing but benevolent. And yeah. you know what I mean? There's that too. <laughs> and then there's like that early orange sort of imperialistic anxiety that we have. Like they're here to take our water or our resources or ignoring the fact that like those resources are way more plentiful out, yeah. you know, off planet. Yeah. Um, but there's that imperial kind of projection. Um, and then there's sort of the, you know, maybe a more humanitarian or zoological orange perspective, which is they're here to study us. And that's why they, you know, like the ant colony example I gave earlier, just plucking us out so they can understand. And our consciousness is so minuscule compared to, the, to theirs that they don't even really consider us as, uh, you know, uh, having our own agency and free will, at least not to the extent that they do. They might relate to us the way we relate to like a, a wasp or something. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it, when it comes to these questions of intent, I mean, so much of it depends on your own stage of development on the one hand, and then obviously the completely unknowable stage of development of whatever these entities are. Right, man, that is a great frame up. And I so concord with so much of that and then complicating, or perhaps just 
multiplying and expanding that is some of the further messaging that comes. So another real great consistency among experiencers of certain ilk is that they become vegetarians. And the reason that they become vegetarians is multifaceted, but includes such things as increased empathy and mutuality with what they had previously considered to be food, which was their food. And the message, which is also frequently communicated to experiencers, which is your sovereignty has already been forfeited because you have created the, one of the most massive systems of suffering in order to cultivate food imaginable. Your whole planet is you enslaving sentient beings for food. And so you have forfeited yours. That's part of why this is happening to you. Now, do I I'd like, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying that comes up again and again. And then I loved your developmental frame up. And when we consider the pluralistic frame of these are our messianic saviors. Mm. And then we go into the other direction of, you know, well, they have pretty exalted sentiments around us eating pigs and cows, but they do things that any human being would go to jail for for the rest of their life. Straight up. I mean, to take a amber, to, to side with the amber for a moment, if you violated these codes of conduct in human society, you'd spend the rest of your life in federal prison. Right. So I don't buy at all the notion that because they have a greater facility with technology, because they seem to have a passport among dimensions that we can't yet imagine, and because they are able to manipulate our perceptions and experiences to what almost feels like magic moving through walls and whatnot, levels and lines. I don't think any of that attests to them being spiritually superior to us or having any business. I also don't, I'm not advocating that I don't want to interact with them. You know, I've never had a negative experience with the entity that I've interacted with. I've, and I've had other anomalous experiences as well, and none of them have been negative. So at the same time, I have to respect and provide care for all of those I know who have had very traumatic experiences. This is a complicated puzzle. And I love the way you framed it up. And I think if we could get... I mean, just to begin with, if we could get more of a vertical component to how we're even asking the questions, oh my God, the improvement to our conversations and points of inquiry. And that, that's, and that's, that's true, like across the board for every yeah, right? subject that's imaginable. A, I couldn't agree <laughs> you know? more. It's just two across the board. And then of course I have fantasies about, yeah, we're going to, it's going to be a time in our point of human evolution inquiry and curiosity in which not just four quadrants but the eight zones and Mm -hmm. all the levels and lines like that can just be shorthand for i tell you and you're right it's true with almost any domain in human life but oftentimes i'm listening or reading taking in research and whatever it is the material that researchers are sharing in these anomalous fields and just feeling oh man if I could just get you 20 pages, the first 20 pages of sex, ecology, spirituality, or whatever it is, and to help you not have to chase your own tail like that all the time. But then again, I was guilty of it. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? We all are. I live, we all, that's, that's what it is. And I try often to remind myself that I was not wrong to be five. You know, I was not. Yeah. But then I also, I imagine Ramana Maharshi and I'm like, what would Ramana Maharshi have made of 
astral travel at the age of five? And then what would he have made of it at the age of 50? And how do we accelerate the recapitulation of whatever that was, right? Like, well, if anything, so I think that this, this, you know, this piece of the conversation, I think, is an invitation for us to remember to mind our own projections. You know what I mean? Like, for example, one of the one of the frequent ways that people make sense of this is, and it's probably fairly new to the last couple of decades, is oh, they're here, the entities are here to protect the ecology of our planet. Well, that's a green projection. And in fact, it's a green projection that might get amplified by our growing anxiety that we are dealing with these challenges and life conditions and we don't have a solution for it. So we're looking for an escape hatch, right? Oh, and that escape hatch happens to be an interpretation of these interstellar visitors that are coming here to save us from ourselves. I mean, in a way that's sort of green wish fulfillment. And I wouldn't be surprised if when and if we do discover their real intentions, it is just so much more complex and nuanced and just straight up alien than yeah. we can possibly imagine. Yeah, well, that's that's a famous Jacques Vallée quote is, I'll be very disappointed if they turn out to just be interstellar travelers. Right. And I think it's a great point and one area of beauty and depth that Shauna as Bjorn Hargens has really helped to unpack is the taxonomy of not just these greys and mantids and those involved with the abduction, but I, I believe he's over 60 entities he's put together in the taxonomy and they include fey folk and they include um, more subtle beings and perhaps what we might consider to be the pantheon of Vajrayana Buddhist deities. And it, it's, it's all in there. And I just have such a regard for him getting it that wide, that high, that yeah. deep. And because I think there's really something to this component that it would be convenient and simple as hell if they were just coming from other planets and that doing surveys and what like I think there is a really multidimensional enigma in here that is it's beneficial to take your integral curiosity to yeah well and that was one of the um for me one of the surprising things is when sean hargens turned this corner i mean with you it's like Stu, you've always been good weird uh, exactly. <laughs> getting into this shit wasn't like a big surprise or shock to me i was like okay this is just Stuart being Stuart, right when sean though as sort of like you know the more academic guy i mean you want to talk about cancel culture it's a lot easier for an academic to get you know certain written off oh, yeah. right and to lose their legitimacy than it is for an artist too because artists can you know i i at my job i primarily identify as an artist because it gives me the most latitude to fuck up <laughs> right exactly you're supposed to that's like, your calling so, someone says i'm doing something wrong it's like well i'm just an artist man i'm just doing paint at the wall you know i'll, I'll, cover, <laughs> up with, I'll cover it up with another yeah. color later man but like for someone like sean where it's like your reputation your legitimacy really depends on you know how people sort of enact you um it it takes a certain amount of courage to turn that corner and actually start you know treating this subject from a very rigorous and academic point of view and Sean um, is great at this because he has the entire integral methodology behind him um, yeah. which allows him to put I think meat on the bones in a certain kind of way in really really novel and interesting ways um, so totally. I definitely encourage people to, to follow up with Sean there the perils are not exaggerated either and to circle back to John Mack who was not only tenured Harvard professor of psychiatry. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. You just didn't get 
more legitimate than he was. And when he began to sincerely come forward and say, uh, no, there's something to this phenomenon. This is not mental illness. This is not some aberrant new social emergent we don't understand. These people are, one thing he was really clear about is these people are experiencing what they're reporting. Just start there. They're not making this up. This is not a lie. This is not a delusion. In fact, the implications of any of them sharing their story, and I have found this over and over again, out of the hundreds of emails that I have received from experiences, virtually none of them ever want to be known publicly. Mm -hmm. All they want is someone to hear their story. And what we can follow and extend from that is that not only do people not want to be known for what has happened to them or is happening to them, they never report it to anyone, any formal organization, virtually no experiencers report. And I'm, this includes like UFO sightings, but the more you click over toward entity contact, it virtually falls off a precipice to nearly zero. Mm. And that again is completely understandable because in the case of John Mack, who was tenured, and at the top of his world, they spent years trying to tarnish him, remove him from that post. There were lawsuits. He ended up winning and he was redeemed in that regard. But I think the message for academics was clear for decades to come, which is make that move at the penalty of your whole life. You will lose it all. And experiencers feel that same thing. They all think they're going to lose. Well, it's not imagination. They do. When they yeah. begin to sincerely try to contend with these puzzles, marriages bust up, families fall apart, addictions start, jobs are lost, the list is long. So yeah, I think that Sean's move, I mean, when he made that move, not only was I so enthusiastically proud of him, I also felt protective of him. And then I yeah. also had this feeling of relief because he's smarter than I am. And I knew he's going to do a great job. And I was just like, oh my God, he's doing it. We can relax. <laughs> like, I don't have to worry about it. I thought I might have to try to do that and I wasn't going to be able to do it. And certainly not as well as him. So that's a beautiful thing. It is. And, and Sean is definitely smarter than uh, most of us. Yes, he is. Yep. And uh, in my case, the disparity is growing with each passing week. <laughs> Uh, the deleterious effects of age. <laughs> so I got two more questions for you. One might be uh, sort of a smartish question and the other uh, a more kind of fun speculative question. You got time? Yep, bro. I'm all good. Whenever, whatever, whenever. It's all good. Beautiful, two baby. questions. You bet. Two questions. Okay. So um, one of my favorite science fiction movies uh, is the movie Arrival. Have you seen that one? Yes. Several times. What was amazing about that is it wasn't just a science fiction movie. It was like an entire film about semiotics and when do you ever get a movie about semiotics right like yep. how do we understand each other what are the basic building blocks of shared meaning and how can we actually resonate with another entity that speaks a language that again is just so beyond our reference points it's like trying to imagine a new color it's, it's really 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 hard to do yeah um and this is one of the things that i um kind of get more 
you know, fascinated with is, okay, so let's just say kind of the most cliche version of this, a metallic UFO <laughs> drops out of the sky and lands on the lawn of the freaking White House, right? And the, <laughs> the, the door opens and the ramp descends and out walks this green dude with antenna and, you know, totally cliche, you know, six-year-old understanding of, of alien contact. So how do we actually even begin to imagine communicating with this entity when we on this planet are surrounded by other intelligent species? I mean, at the very least, horses, elephants, dolphins, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, octopi. Um, they just recently learned that cuttlefish passed the marshmallow test. Cuttlefish yeah. are capable of delaying their own gratification, um, which yeah. is, you know, sort of a quality that's only associated with uh, more intelligent, mostly primates. Um, so, I mean, we are surrounded by intelligent species here on our own planet, where presumably we have a lot more common reference points with, you know, we share the same evolutionary track with them. Um, and yet we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to communicating with these entities. How can we possibly imagine communicating with entities that are, again, maybe 20 full holonic levels above where we are? Is it even feasible or does it depend on these other civilizations being able to i don't know let's just say downsample their communication uh down to our level where they're like <laughs> blasting and you know into our own consciousness well it is such a great question and what arrives for me off the top is music so mm. this strange mystical, mysterious experience we have when we become absorbed in music in which something ineffable and yet immediate, unmistakable, palpable is transmitted to us from whence it came and what it's saying, the conversations could go on forever, right? So when I, the music, when I sit down to listen to it, puts me into this place of such intimacy it's not transgressive, though, but it gets this free pass to go into the center of me. And it interacts with my secrets and my wounds and my hopes and my needs and none of it's verbal. And I really, as a musician, I don't even understand how all of that is happening. But nonetheless, I feel so infinitely grateful and I'm in such appreciation of the miracle that that mode, that language has become so fundamental to our human experience. And I would actually argue in the broader context of our entire conversation, I think that's an interesting note to just put our hand on for a minute, which is music, which came from people and operates in unfathomable beauty and communication, none of it's verbal. So part of me, I mean, of course, People are going to have a recall of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and how music was the mediating uh, force in that encounter or the, or the, the gathering. And I think that the point of all of that that I'm sharing is just that creates such optimism in me that 
the limits, the, the fecundity of our creativity is so robust and resilient that part of me thinks as musicians and artists, particularly artists and artistry and our creativity, because we have ceaselessly surprised ourselves over and over and in the manner we emulate the fundamental primordial nature of the cosmos, it's creativity. Really, that's, I would make a advocation that that's our primordial spiritual lineage, which is creativity itself. We did this course once called something from nothing around that. So off the top of that, I'm really optimistic and I think we could find a way. I do know all of these accounts from experiencers on how, uh, and I apologize that I'm bringing up mantids a lot. It's just what I know the best, yeah, no, the most totally. and personal experience with. But mantids, for instance, there does seem to be definitely a downward gauging and a simplification and distillation. And I believe, and from my experience, uh, because I had a 60 second or about a minute long download where there was just, I was hit with a fire hose of communication from this being, but it was all nonverbal. And to this day, I couldn't necessarily tell you how I can unpack or would unpack, but nonetheless, it very intentionally hit me with a fire hose of its communication. And it also had some movements. And I believe also in its cutting that off, that it was perhaps the brevity of the encounter was important to protect me because, because simply to be communicated with from one of these beings. There's actually, there's a, a spirit of this in Arrival as well, which is the barrier and the compartmentalization and the way that the interaction takes place. It's very important that both perhaps, but certainly humans are protected. And so this is a thing you hear from a lot of mantis experiencers, which is the mantids like to formulate images. They create a kind of symbolic image theater and they put together something that they feel will be will comport with our human consciousness perhaps much better than words although what i would also say is that the last thing the one that i had face to face with the last thing it dropped into my head was remember who you work for and that was in english <laughs> clear as a bell so they can it's got some authority to it i like it <laughs> Well, I did. I thought it did as well. But when I began to investigate it, I realized that I didn't have any idea what that meant. It could have meant a million different things. I don't know what they meant by that. I maybe I work for my higher self. Maybe I were, I don't know. So that got a lot more liquid as the years went on. But the way that they communicate using this uh, either, sorry to use a tainted phrase, but a direct download or a, mm -hmm. a scheme of telepathically implanting images and pictures that have emotional signal to very specific to the experiencer. So these are some of the ways that they seem to be trying to negotiate a workable mutuality with us. Then you hear over and over and over. I mean, this is like cliche at this point, but it's also true, which is telepathy is the lingua franca of non-human entities. They, yeah. just, they just shoot it into your head and it's like, it's there. I always think of Philip K. Dick and the pink beam that landed in his brain that yeah. he wrote about in Vallis. And then yeah. he was flooded with information, some of which was like medical information. 
um, that he was then able to get um, verified when he went to a doctor. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird shit. Yeah. That is such a great example. And I mean, just to uh, make a wink from that reference you just brought up, that's exactly the kind of thing that motivated the podcast aliens and artists, which is uh, we do all project. We project not only from our, vertical developmental station or perhaps our preferences and favorites in terms of states or state chasing and for me one of my big projections was as an artist i was so obsessed with why do these entities seemingly select so many artists when they themselves don't seem to be artists in the sense that we would know or recognize. They don't hang paintings in the interior of their environments. They don't carve, dance. I mean, perhaps people can find exceptions, but in the, in general, on the whole, they seem to not have an ornamented life, and yet they seem particularly fixated with artists of all different kinds of genres, many painters, many musicians. Rock music is replete with these contact experiences, and some of them are wild and hilarious and many of them are a little tragic so that's why we did that podcast and it's back to the spirit of of your question in the first place which was how do they communicate well i think somehow art and creativity and music are going to be part of a more beautiful bridge if one does arrive that will allow us to have back and forth through maybe more simple or rudimentary forms of attunement that's that's a beautiful response, and you know, and, and maybe this is just my own sort of integral projection of intent out there, right? But maybe they're selecting the artists for the same reasons or similar reasons that Ken actually sort of framed art as back in the early days of Integral Naked, which is this is the avant-garde. You know, these artists are the ones who are pushing into new morphic territories that have not unfolded yet and have not congealed yet, which means that they are more open than the vast majority of us to new ideas, new understandings, new interpretations, new ways of being, etc. Because they are, you know, they're literally going out and seeing out new territories that have yet to be colonized by the rest of us. As soon yes. as those territories get colonized, it becomes sort of more opaque and it's harder to, to penetrate in there but you know at every stage of history's unfolding throughout you know all of human civilization at every stage you had a group of artists that were pushing for the very first time into that next higher stage and i think there's a a fertility there right there's something about their consciousness that is just automatically more receptive in a certain kind of way or at least more open and and probably more curious uh, and, and maybe really it's the curiosity that. itself, the willingness to ask the question is what sort of delivers an answer or something resembling an answer, or at least a response to the call, right? And, you know, yeah. with your music metaphor, I loved your music metaphor because um, one of my favorite quotes about music, which again, just feels really relevant here, comes from uh, Walter Savage Landor. He says, music is God's gift to man, the only art of heaven given to earth, the only art of earth we take to heaven. Wow. I just got goosebumps. I love that quote. Wow. I love that quote. And there's something about the, um, the immediacy of music and just the, the immediacy of the transmission that comes through music and how that breaks through all of these interpretive barriers that we might hold, right? It gets underneath all of that. You don't need to understand the sound in order to get a hit 
of you know the feeling and the 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 the, the rhythms and the vibes and, and all of that. I mean, it just it it bypasses so much of your frontal cortex and just lands in a deep way for us and just lights us it's up. It's really true. Out. It gets a bypass. It's one yeah. of these few, and, and you know. There's this truism in integral, nobody gets to skip stages, but I think music gets to skip barriers. I think music yeah. is one instantiation that bypasses the typically uh, configured obstacles that we use to insulate ourselves and form a boundary to keep ourselves all, you know, all of that understandable stuff. But music just goes right through the labyrinth to the heart and bam. Right. That's well, a beautiful here's, quote. Here's something to think of. This actually brings us to our next um, speculative question. I, I, I call this the bong hit question. So um, for, <laughs> for those of you at home, light up for this next one. <laughs> um, but do you ever wonder, right? I mean, again, this gets at how integral is integral? How much predictive power does it actually have? And one of my common questions um, that I often find myself ruminating on, sometimes even without the bong hit, is, um, you know, what does evolution look like in other parts of the universe? How much similarity does it have with evolution here? Like a simple question, is it possible that we somehow are the only intelligent species in our corner of the galaxy who values music? Maybe music is something that's so unique to, you know, not the human condition, but the earth condition to sort of the Gaian pocket of intelligence that's developing here. Maybe this is like our unique contribution to the galactic disc. Maybe not. Music is maybe universal and can be found on every planet. And, you know, it sort of becomes a, a, a universal language in and of itself. But I love thinking about these things because, you know, like, for example, one of my questions is, um, do we expect that evolution on other planets would, for example, create something like a plant kingdom and an animal kingdom, right? That's how it took shape here on this planet is that how it's going to take place elsewhere or are there other sort of organic combinations that again we can't imagine because we've never seen them and it's like imagining a new color um you know so i i like to think about this because like i'm a woodworker now right so i i recently fell in love with wood as a medium and sometimes i say to myself you know i wonder if i was able to sell my art on an intergalactic market, maybe this stuff would be more valuable than gold because earth is the only place you can find wood. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Maybe this is so precious. And to me, this is a, a reminder for us to not take for granted sort of the everyday miracles that we're surrounded by because at the end of the day, it very well could be completely unique to us. And other intelligences want to visit us not so that they can give something to us, but so they can get something from us so that we can enrich their cultures, whatever the hell those are. Mm. Um, but all of this predicates on that, that simple question of like, how similar are these different evolutionary trajectories gonna be from planet to planet, star to star, galaxy to galaxy, et cetera. What are your thoughts? I definitely have the final word on this. I totally know how life has evolved at all the farthest stretches of the galaxy. So you don't even need the bong. Uh, I'm just going to say what everyone's thinking. No, I don't even need the bong. No, this question itself is bongful. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so uh, I love ruminating on this because one place that I begin is noticing the great consistency of spheres. Mm. 
planets are spheres, stars are spheres. And then even within the morphology of galaxies and clusterings, I mean, we, as a more... It's an isotropic universe. Yeah, right. I mean, so, so like to pull up one of the more crude... Uh, evidences of this when you go from the micro micro to the macro macro we've always seen those fast forward movies and what it's like on the inside of a body or or what the um quantum no not quantum excuse me uh uh fractal nature of a reality of a leaf is going all the way up to the clustering of multi galaxies like we've seen those so i think patterning is in place in ways that are probably somewhat consistent in somewhat registers throughout the cosmos. But then other things, I'm going to tell a story that was kind of a wild card in my morphological wanderings in this kind of question. Mm -hmm. So I have had all this work, some experience and uh, we just see so much of the non-human contact populated by bipedal beings. And one question we naturally have is, why the fuck are all these mothers and fathers walking around with two legs and two arms and faces on the front right. of their heads? What is this, Star Trek? How, right, like now you're telling me they came from some, how, they all look like us? That doesn't, you know, that bothered me for a while. Yep. And then one night my wife Marcy and I were sitting on the deck we were on our backs actually laying down. We had had the most significant conversation with our daughters that we'd ever had about death. I mean, we really just went there as a family. It was beautiful and profound, so much so that when my daughters went downstairs, my wife and I just leaned back in silence mm. and we stayed silent for a while. I don't know how long, five, 10 minutes, we were just stargazing. It was a crystal clear night. So we're, we're stargazing on our backs and this moving from south to north this green plasma tube about 12 to 15 feet long and maybe two feet thick which looked almost like it was on fire but it didn't look like fire it was billowing in green with white tinges these flames which were rippling off of its body as it spiraled directly in front of our fucking faces i mean i could have literally taken the cushion and hit this thing it was no more than 15 feet above our faces and it moved in slow motion and it was huge and it was cylindrical and it was absolutely <laughs> it was it was the most astounding thing i've ever seen and it moved slow enough thank goodness that we really got a good look at it. And it just simply passed right in front of our faces and then kept moving and receding into the dis distance off in our neighborhood. And I mean, I sat up like I was electrified and I looked at Marcy and I said, right now, you're going to tell me what I'm going to record what you're going to tell me that you just saw. Like I immediately was so concerned about not. Yeah, please confirm this for me. Yes, exactly. So she did. She did. And and then I shared that's exactly what I just saw. And I, I was just beside myself. I was pacing and frenetic lit up with this energy. And she was stupefied and silenced. And I wanted 
to just pour over every detail and possibility of what that was. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And she said, I can't think about that. It stops my brain. That's a verbatim quote of what she said to me. Ontological shock. Exactly. Exactly. And then I said, honey, that's all I want to talk about. And she said, I already have a full life. I can't go there. I'm sorry. I'm already full. My life is full and I don't want any more of this. I don't want. And so back to this. I get it. Origination. Yeah, I get it too. I totally respect it. And I would actually speculate that the reason I'm still alive is that my wife is that grounded. That if there were two of me, we would have burned up in a barn 20 years ago. So totally respect it. And thankfully, like with the experiencer group and whatnot, I have lots and lots of people to talk to about these things. But to your question around the consistency and patterning and what we're going to find in other places. The reason I wanted to share that story is that that was such a curveball and was something that to this day, I literally don't have a single category for. I went to psychics, I went to mediums. I'm just like, can you tell me what that was and why? And all I can share with certitude is the feeling that I had and the clues that were around the event. And so, of course, the most obvious clue is that we had just talked about death for over an hour. It was fucking deep and powerful. We really, we all really felt raw. So that was going on. It was seen by the both of us. We both saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. I really felt clear this thing displayed itself to us on purpose. It selected us to display itself, but it didn't have any message. It didn't, I couldn't tell you like there's, that's not part of it. It was more like visual music perhaps the spectacle was so utterly transfixing and I will feel it for the rest of my life. But if something that crazy can happen on earth, what are the wild cards on the other gajillion, trillion, billion, trillion planets and dimensions and realms like causal, subtle, gross, and whatever else is out there. And that's not probably a very satisfying answer to your question, but it's just to say, I think that, the long game is surprise. Beautifully said, yeah. Well, and I guess, um, you know, it actually prompts me to want to ask one more question, which is um, when these experiences happen, um, when people are dealing with this very real ontological shock, uh, which oftentimes comes from the fact that there, there is no satisfying interpretation. And chances are you'll go the rest of your life without you know, a satisfying interpretation without, you know, ever finding full understanding of whatever it is that happened to you. And yet um, we want to keep this mystery alive for ourselves. We don't want to feel the need to push it away or, you know, like Mercy said, Jesus, my life is already full enough. I can't, if I let this in, this is just going to be too much because I, you know, I, I need my mental resources just to get through what we have to get through. We have a family, we have right. That yeah. pressure is real. The pressure is real. So do you have any advice, even practice-based advice, if you are someone who had an experience like this, such as myself, and, and like you, my, my experience was nearly as, it was not nearly as vivid as yours, but I was deeply grateful that I had the experience with other people, right? So that I could at least have that. I could at least have the was? verification that like we, we saw something together. 
right? I don't know what it was. I'm not well, going to pretend to know what it is. But I think I, you have to tell us what it, what the experience was, though. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I will. It was it was a very um, minor experience that um, people listening can probably find a thousand ways to explain away. But at the moment it happened, it felt very significant. And this was, um, geez, I was probably 20 years old or so. I was driving uh, into Boston um, with a couple of my friends, two of my friends. And we're just driving down the street. And it was weird. It was one of those weird times where... You know, I was in my 20s. I really couldn't shut up back then. But it was one of those weird times where we didn't have any music on and we were just driving in silence for some reason. And we're going down the highway. And what I remember vividly about this is the color of the sky of Boston, because Boston has um, their streetlights have this kind of orangey kind of tone to them. And when they're all on, the night sky takes on this really, really bizarre color that's like a combination of purple and orange. It's, it's super weird looking skies out there. But we're driving down the highway and I look up at the sky and I see this really, really bright light. And it, it just opened up right where I happened to be looking. I was just looking at this patch of sky and all of a sudden there was no light and suddenly there was one. And it was really strong and it was just sitting there. It wasn't moving at all, um, which can be a little bit hard to tell, sure, because we're driving a car down the highway. But the best I could tell, this thing was stationary and it just sat there and it had sort of this very subtle pulse to it. And then literally, it was like a 1950s comic book. I'm watching and I see this beam of light, which looked like it was like a cone that came out. And it didn't go out too much, too far beyond the light itself. But it was this, this little cone that came out and it pulsed like three or four times. Just this, gen you know, looked like, again, a cartoon picture of like, beam me up, Scotty, you know. Um, and then we're just, all three of us are watching in total stunned silence. And then this thing... Literally, the light kind of collapsed on itself, just shrank to nothing and disappeared. It didn't move. It didn't go anywhere. It just zoop, and vanished. So like it popped up, it pulsed a few times, and then it kind of collapsed on itself. And then the three of us were just sitting there staring at each other like, first off, that was real, right? Like I'm not, I'm not hallucinating. Right? Like that, we just saw something and we were all like, I have no idea what the fuck that was. Now, post hoc, I'm going through all that, you know, that could have been, a, I don't know, maybe there was a helicopter. This was before drones, so it definitely wasn't a drone, but maybe it was some weird helicopter and, you know, the, the, the light reflected off the swamp gas and <laughs> you know, all that. And the weather balloon came down and, you know, whatever. Might I'm trying to rationalize the experience, but there was something, all I could say is there was something about the experience itself that provoked a deep and reverent sense of awe and mystery even though it, it only lasted about 10 seconds and it was over as quickly as it began, I was just left in a state of mystery, right? And I've always kind of held on to that experience and kind of put it in parentheses and set it aside because it's like, I, I'll never know, right? I'll never really know. All I can do is sort of conjecture what that was or what it might've been or try to falsify it with these other you know, possible explanations and all that. Um, I can do that until it just drives me absolutely nuts or I can continue living my life while sort of keeping an open mind to these kinds of phenomena and seeing what comes down the line and seeing if it registers with other people's experience. Um, I then found out later that um, apparently a lot of experiences of what seemed to be craft up there have a, a similar behavior where they just kind of crunch down. It's almost like they, fall, they, they generate their own black hole or something mm -hmm. and they just kind of, you know, shrink and disappear. Um, maybe it was a subtle level phenomena. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know what it was, but it did give me that sense of mystery. And I found myself in the years 
after, I want to hold on to that mystery. You know what I mean? I don't want life and sort of consensual reality to beat that out of me. There's something in there I want to keep alive because it keeps me curious and it keeps me asking questions. And I want to be able to do so without, you know, wanting to put a gun in my mouth because, oh my God, everything I might know about everything could be wrong. Yeah. Wow. That's a great account. And I'm appreciative that you shared it. And of course, thank goodness that it was witnessed by multiple people that if I was alone, I would have gone nuts. You know what I mean? So yeah. I feel deep sympathy towards people who have these experiences and cannot find any confirmation anywhere for them other than, look, I have this memory, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, no, it's really true. Um, and I have two things to share and reflection on that. One is just that you're probably familiar with the account which occurred at Ariel School, I believe it was 1994 in Zimbabwe when in broad daylight, this this private school had 70 or 80 kids on the playground during recess craft lands two beans get out cross the field face to face with these children for 10 minutes and one of the 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 woman who was face to face with these entities for 10 minutes among others but she was closest uh emily trim we did a multi-part episode arc with her on aliens and artists and why i'm bringing her up is that you know if you're in a car and three of you see this thing pop in out of nowhere and do that behavior and then collapse in on itself. It is such a reassurance that there's a multiple witness account to it. And this event at RL school, it should have changed the world. I mean, it nearly did. It was very well covered and documented. And there's a film coming out about two multiple films, I believe actually coming out this year. But if we imagine that some satisfactory resolution is going to come down the conveyor belt for these kids who stood face to face with these entities, who, by the way, flooded their brains with apocalyptic visions of the world ending. These entities showed up, flooded all the kids with the apocalypse and then other messages. You're killing your world. The trees are all going to fall down. You won't be able to breathe. Then when the event was over, if we imagine that there's going to be some satisfying resolution to that, no, that was a life-destroying and life-transforming event. It went every direction we can imagine. So, the maybe, shared... it, was a, maybe it was a prank call. I, well, maybe that was the uh, the alien equivalent of like, is your refrigerator running? <laughs> so you have Prince Albert in a can, kind of thing. From another. <laughs> so, but to the question around what for me centers on, for instance, wonder. I do very much in the spirit of your sharing, like I want to keep the mystery alive. I want to keep the wonder alive and not just because I want to be entertained or enchanted. I want to know reality in its full dimensional dynamism and wonder is one of those things for for a long time. Like whatever happens, I'm leaving this world with my sense of wonder intact, not because I'm possessive of it, but because It's a faculty that will introduce me to entire registers of reality that otherwise I wouldn't get to feel, encounter, or be with. Wonder is this critical, that's my passport. And the mystery is another way to put it. So how to do that, how to keep the mystery alive, how to remain open Mm -hmm. to the possible and the mysterious. For me, it's usually been pretty simple stuff 
you know, sure, it could look like meditation, but I think more importantly, it looks like holding up oppositional forces, the capacity to hold oppositional forces and to not collapse the quote unquote wave function of our experience into a more convenient comfort zone. And so I don't think you can do that all the time, but I think the training and the methodologies that we can introduce, any one of them that help us to somatically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, culturally, hold opposing presences, whether they're concepts or cosmologies, that has been something that I really have found helpful. It's difficult, but it's also it's in our nature. Yeah. I mean that that that's a human inheritance itself. So oh we, can, we are we are a mystery eating, you know, meaning excreting right. machine, you know? We are. We're story yeah. creatures, we're meaning creatures, we're misty creatures. So I also think it's really natural for us. And that the last thing I'll say is that, you know, that quote, when you take one step toward God, God comes running toward you. There's truth to that when it comes to the mysterious and the enigmatic as well. Sometimes that has a downside to it, but very often it does not. And if you surround yourself with a practice, with allies, with guides, with your ancestors, whatever it is, configuration you find most helpful, but do it as a team. Right. Don't go into the woods alone. Do it as a team, build a team, have long-term relationships, protect each other, and keep love at the very center of it all. Gorgeous. Oh, and that's, that's, the, that's the recipe for integral anti-fragility right there, no matter what you happen to be looking at, right? I mean, yeah. keep love primary oh you know keep your heart alive keep your heart open um yeah. everything else follows Stu, this is beautiful man i'm sending you love brother i'm sending that's you how this love, thing brother. wraps up a love fest yeah baby a love nova <laughs> well no this has been um absolutely fascinating and i want to do this more with you um i so, so enjoy it yeah we're gonna be we're gonna be staying in touch and i've actually got a number of uh of uh little sort of content pieces that I want you to. I would do. love to anytime I, I want to play. We got to play more, get back into it. Uh, it's been too long and I'm ready for the next iteration of frivolity, jovality, and profundity. Love it, man. Well, let's, let's give a couple plugs at the very end. Uh, where can people find you? The triptych would be stuartdavis.com for music, stuff, art, TV. Then aliens and artists is the podcast which is, of course, about creativity and contact with non-human entities. And then the community of membership, which is private, is called the Experiencer Group. And it's very, very broad as an umbrella. It's everything, as I said in the beginning, from near death to remote viewing. It's not just alien stuff by any measure at all. And those are my main three squeezes at the moment. Well, let's maybe invite our audience. Um, you know, if you've had any anomalous experiences and you're comfortable sharing it with you know other um, integral life members and the rest of the community let us know in the comments right down there uh, wherever you happen to be watching this video whether, whether on integral life website or on youtube wherever we end up posting it um, let us know if you've had any of these experiences yourself and if you want to talk about them if this conversation has been helpful for you in terms of uh, just relating to your own experiences uh, and if you're not comfortable talking about it publicly 
um, for reasons that I think all of us obviously understand, you know, maybe we invite you to join uh, this, this membership group, uh, the experiencer group, so that you can share, uh, you know, among a, a, a community of peers who will take what you have to say seriously and at face value without any shame or ridicule or anything like that. Beautifully put. I'm really pleased that you remembered to do that because I failed to. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah. Yes to all of that. Beautiful. Well, Stuart, thank you so much, man. I love you uh, so deeply and I'm just so happy we had the opportunity to catch up and do the show. And I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, how this landed for people. Completely. I love you, brother. And thank you very much for the wonderful connection and, and conversation. You know it, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Peace. Right. Bye everyone. This is the Hubble Deep Field. It's what happened when a group of astronomers decided to point the Hubble Space Telescope at a tiny, apparently empty patch of deep space, about the size of a tennis ball as seen from across a football field, or around 1 24th of a million percent of the total sky, a tiny pinprick in the fabric of the universe. And what we saw became what is possibly the most beautiful and most profound image ever recorded. We poked a hole in the sky and all of this light came pouring through, resulting in this extraordinary image of nearly 3,000 celestial lights. But these lights aren't stars, like we see in the vast majority of Hubble photos. These are entire galaxies and they traveled billions of light years to arrive finally in our retinas. Galaxies. It's one of my favorite words, sort of a one-word poem like firefly or suicide. It sounds so much bigger than the word itself. These are entire galaxies. 3,000 different galaxies as they existed billions of years ago during our own universe's adolescence. How many stars have lived, died, and been born again since these photons first began their journey through the intergalactic void? How many different species and even civilizations have risen and fallen over these billions of years? How many stories have been told, religions invented, wars waged, hearts broken and reignited? So what do you see when you look at this incredible photograph? I'll tell you what I see. I see countless galaxies, each containing hundreds of billions of stars and planets and moons, all made of the same star stuff that I am. Matter and energy that is constantly churning, changing, and evolving always becoming more than it is, always reaching for greater truth, greater beauty, and greater goodness. I see 3,000 pools of light that are becoming ever more enlightened. And within that great luminosity, I can sometimes catch the occasional glimpse of my own reflection as spirit in third person, staring back at me across billions of light years of time and space reminding me that consciousness truly does stretch to the very ends of existence, and that this, too, is arising within me. And then I imagine someone else standing there on the other edge of the universe, looking through a telescope at our own fledgling Milky Way galaxy. So I smile and I wave hello, 
standing together here on the brink of eternity, separated only by an impossible gulf of time and space.